Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. We talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. The New York Times Magazine special edition that first came out in 2019 asked readers to consider a new origin story for America that's not the Declaration of Independence, but rather when the first ship carrying enslaved people from Africa arrived in the British colony of Virginia. The 1619 Project is now a book that expands on slavery's deep and enduring role in American society and responds to debates sparked by its reframing of U.S. history. Nicole Hannah-Jones joins us next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For Martin Luther King Day yesterday, Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project, was asked to give a speech. Only to learn, she tweeted, that a small number of members of the group hosting her opposed her giving a speech about Dr. King, calling her, quote, a discredited activist. So Hannah Jones scrapped her original speech without first telling the audience and instead read excerpts from King's speeches between 1956 and 67, including, quote, the crowning achievement in hypocrisy must go to those staunch Republicans and Democrats of the Midwest and West who were given land by our government when they came here as immigrants from Europe. They were given education through the land-grant colleges. These are the same people that now say to black people whose ancestors were brought to this country in chains and who were emancipated in 1863 without being given land to cultivate or bread to eat that they must pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. What they truly advocate is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. We know full well that racism is still that hound of hell which dogs the tracks of our civilization. Ever since the birth of our nation, white America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She's been torn between selves, a self in which she proudly professes the great principle of democracy and a self in which she madly practices the antithesis of democracy." End quote. Then Hannah Jones revealed these were King's words and not hers and tweeted that she went on to say, people who oppose today what he stood for back then do not get to be the arbiters of his legacy. Nicole Hannah Jones joins us now. Welcome to Forum. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, first, I mean, wow, <laughs> that was an incredible <laughs> retort. But but do tell us more about this speech that happened just yesterday and the message you were sending with it, the issues you were addressing with it. 
Well, let me first uh, begin by saying I intentionally did not name the place where I gave the speech because mm. my hosts were actually quite gracious. This was a <laughs> small minority and I didn't want uh, people to you know, troll the organization that brought me. But I did think it posed really an, an excellent opportunity because we know this time of year, um, people who are actively working against the things that Dr. King most fought for, like to use him um, against those who are still fighting for social justice. And I just understood that many, many people who talk about what Dr. King would have respected or what he would have wanted or whose side he would have been on, have never actually read most of what he's written and have no idea how radical he truly is. And I know certainly Dr. King has been used against me, um, where people have said I, I have defiled his legacy by the work that I do. So it just seemed like a, a tremendous opportunity to really turn on uh, its head what people think about Dr. King and to point out uh, that many, many people who say they support his aims would have opposed him um, if they knew what he actually stood for. Yeah, so often we hear the line quoted about his children dreaming of living in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then, you know, we see Martin Luther King invoked by people who are trying to make voting harder uh, for black people and people of color. I, I want to read just a another tweet that you uh, sent out yesterday where you say the real Dr. King cannot be commodified, homogenized, and whitewashed. And whatever side you stand on today is the side you would have been back then. And you also write, this is why the 1619 Project exists. This is why the decades of scholarship that undergirds the 1619 Project exists. Because if we do nothing, they will co-opt our history and use it against us. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it really is, um, so much of what happened yesterday does feel like it really gets to the heart of the broader project um, and its aims. Absolutely. This is, I made this point at my speech yesterday, um, is that we can't just idly allow people to determine what parts of history we understand or we learn about. It's the same way, you know, in that same speech, I pointed out everyone seems to know about the I have a dream part of that speech, which actually wasn't called I have a dream. And everyone seems to know about the part that you just read about judging, you know, I hope one day my children will be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, but they don't know the rest of that speech which is actually an indictment of America. Uh, he says that you know, the Declaration of Independence was a promissory note, but that the United States had defaulted on the promissory note when it came to Black people, and that Black people had come to Washington to cash a check to demand that their rights be fulfilled. Um, so if, if we're allowing people to teach us a truncated history a manipulated history and not actually doing the research for ourselves, then that is a that is a means of social control. Uh, I was just looking today, someone posted about a, a Dr. King flyer that was posted at an Amazon factory. Um, mm -hmm. And it was talking about service uh, or Amazon warehouse, I'm sorry. It was talking about service and peace. And of course, when Dr. King was killed, 
he was in Memphis supporting a strike amongst low-wage workers and would certainly be opposed to anti the anti-union efforts of Amazon. And what I was actually talking about social justice, was actually talking about people who work and make a poverty wage. And yet the only thing that we want to talk about with King is nonviolent protests, because that is seen as the acceptable way to protest, and that he had some colorblind dreams, when actually Dr. King uh, had a, an extremely sharp racial critique. And he argued that Black people were owed something special because Black people were the only ones who, who went through chattel slavery. Um, so what in that same kind of line, that is what the 1619 Project is trying to do, is to say we've been taught a very narrow version of American history, one that much like the slave Bibles that were handed out to enslaved people that took out almost all the chapters that would lead Black people to read the Bible and say, oh, we should resist slavery. Um, but that's the version of history that many of us learn. And it is a version that tries to keep us complacent, that tries to tell Black people that we haven't contributed much to this society, that we haven't resisted, that we don't have a kind of foundational role. And history is used as a, as a means of social control. And Can certainly you... that's why we see the response to this project that we've seen. Can you talk about the moment that you realized that history can be managed and manipulated and has been to maintain systems of power because it is really what led to this project years later. Absolutely. I was 16 years old. Um, I took a class that my high school offered. It was uh, a one semester black studies elective. And I talk about this in the origin for the 1619 or in the opening essay, the preface for the 1619 Project book, that uh, in that class, my teacher gave me a book called Before the Mayflower. And some 30 pages in, I came across the date 1619, which marks, of course, the first Africans being sold into slavery and what would become the original 13 colonies. They were sold into Virginia. And this was a full year um, before the Mayflower. And as a 16-year-old child, I remember just being struck by the fact that we all knew about the Mayflower and no one had taught us about the white lion. No one had taught us about 1619. I had no idea that black people had been here that long, that slavery was that old. Um, and so as a kid, I understood someone had made that choice because that happened, those facts happened. Those facts were available in books that we could read and yet in all of the history I had taken up until that point, in every movie I'd seen, in every documentary, in every museum, this had never been mentioned. And I understood then that these were choices, that people had made choices about the history we were going to learn. And it really kind of began uh, this <laughs> lifelong obsession with trying to learn as much of this history as I could. Yes, and you, you described presenting it to the New York Times as a simple pitch. What was the pitch? What what was the point of doing this in the New York Times Magazine? So the pitch was, um, which would have been, I think the first week of February, 2019. And the pitch was, do you know that this year will mark the 400th anniversary of slavery in America? And the answer was no, no one knew that date in that room. And then I said, I would like to pitch a project that shows all of the 
ways that slavery still shapes modern society? Do you know that slavery undergirded, undergirded capitalism in America? Did you know the slavery uh, undergirded the lack of democracy in America? And I just listed some things and I said, we should uh, dedicate an entire issue of the magazine, not just to talking about what happened a long time ago, but to showing the surprising ways that the legacy of slavery still shapes America. And that really was the pitch. And um, my editor, Jake Silverstein, uh, immediately said, we we should do that. Um, you know, just a little background is I, I, I've been working towards this, you know, in my career for a long time. And I have always infused my work with a lot of history. And I, Jake knows that I kind of had a, a a uh, long running joke where I always said, eventually I have to get back to 1619 in these stories because he would laugh about how my, the history and my, my investigations was creeping further and further and further back down the timeline. Mm. Um, so it wasn't <laughs> completely surprising that this was kind of something I wanted to do, but this 400th anniversary just seemed um, like a, a kind of a colossal moment in, a, in American history that you could produce something really big. And uh, that's what we did. Yeah. Were you surprised at how, how big they, they let it be, the resources they put behind it? Absolutely. I wasn't surprised that Jake said yes. I, I actually, the reason I went in with a simple pitch was I was confident um, because I, I've i received support for everything that I've wanted to do since I, I came at the Times. And, and mm. Jake really has been uh, one of those rare leaders who understands that if you just let journalists do the work that they want to do, you can produce amazing things. So I wasn't surprised that he said yes, but I certainly was surprised by the amount of resources that ultimately went into this project. Um, there was not, I don't think ever, a, a single project at the New York Times that was uh, produced simultaneously across so many platforms. Yes. We're talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, investigative reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times magazine and creator of the 1619 Project. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What effect has the 1619 Project had on you? What questions do you have for Nicole Hannah-Jones? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, Night Chair in Race and Journalism at Howard University, investigative reporter for the New York Times, and creator of the 1619 Project, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. The project is now a book titled The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. And you, our listeners, are welcome to join and tell us what questions you have for Nicole Hannah-Jones, what effect the 1619 Project had on you, and maybe your thoughts on what our nation needs in order to teach its history accurately and comprehensively. 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or Instagram. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And Beth tweets, bought the 1619 Project, a new origin story, which we have read as part of our homeschooling. Can't understand why anyone would dislike the book. It's enlightening. Monique writes on Facebook, I love the book. There are a lot of O's there. It's fascinating 
and undeniable. Nicole Hannah-Jones, talk about the book and how it's different from the magazine version. There is a lot of new in it. There is a lot of resource and source material, essays that really branch out. Yes. So the new uh, 1619 book is um, significantly expanded from the original project. All of the original essays that were in the magazine have been significantly expanded. Of course, um, we also have added endnotes, which I think is very important, particularly for people who um, have criticized some of the claims of the project and just for the, the regular reader who hasn't heard of these things before and would like to know where we got um, the facts in our in our project. And then we've added eight new essays, um, all of them except the, the new essays that I wrote, written by academic historians. And the beauty of getting a second chance at a project this big is we could think about where were the, the holes in the original project? What were the areas that we didn't cover um, that we wish we did? And, and what were areas that just seemed to be additive to the project? So we have uh, an essay in there by the Harvard historian, Taya Miles on settler colonialism and Indian removal and mm. the slaveholding tribes of the Southeast, which um, I always knew that not dealing with settler colonialism in the original project um, was a problem. I just couldn't quite figure out how to do it in the original project in a way that made sense for the overall theme of the project. And now we have. Um, there's an excellent essay by Carol Anderson on the Second Amendment and the uh, the role that slave insurrections played in us getting a Second Amendment. And um, then there's to me, one of my favorite essays is an essay by Michelle Alexander, the author of the New Jim Crow, and her mm -hmm. sister Leslie and um, Alexander, who's a historian, on the Haitian Revolution and how the Haitian Revolution really uh, helped to shape the ongoing fear of Black Americans as this internal enemy who can't be trusted and, and need to be violently suppressed. So uh, the expansion essays, I think, will be really illuminating for readers. And then uh, two of my favorite parts are the original project also had original short fiction and poetry by some of the greatest writers in America. And that doesn't get talked about that much, but we've also expanded that. We call it a literary timeline. And it begins in 1619 with Claudia Rankin. And the very last poem was written by the woman I completely idolize, who is uh, Sonia Sanchez. She writes the, the last mm. poem in the book. Um, and then there's a, just quickly, a photos. Um, the archival photos are completely new. Uh, we worked with a, a young archivist named Kimberly Denise Henderson, who found photos of just regular Black people living regular life through time. Um, that begins every essay, and it's just a way to pause and reflect that everything that you're reading, all of the horror, all of the brutality, and all of the resilience and resistance, um, this was impacting and being done by real human beings. There's also a chapter called Justice, um, where you make a strong case for reparations. I was really curious when and how you decided to make this part of part of your book, and how, if at all, you think it changes the role of the 1619 Project. So I, I've been a believer in reparations my entire adult life. And when I was working on the original project, you know, I do believe in journalism. 
as activism. There's a reason that the Washington Post says democracy doesn't, does, excuse me, democracy dies in darkness. There's a reason why a journalist who covers social services as an investigative reporter, they don't just write that social services might be failing a child or a family. They write that because they want it to be fixed. So to me, to create this project that is really trying to force an acknowledgement of the centrality of slavery, of uh, the created generational disadvantage that Black Americans experience and to show that being a descendant of American slavery still uh, disadvantages you in every aspect of American life and just leave it at that. Um, would feel like I was misusing the platform and uh, misusing the platform of journalism and the platform of the New York Times. So um, to me, an argument for reparations was always a natural outcome of this project. And I published the essay that would ultimately become justice during the height of the racial protests over George Floyd. And then we decided to end the book at this because to take you on this journey, if you read the book from start to finish, you, to me, need to be left with the understanding that all of this inequality was created and we can do something about that. And in fact, once we know, uh, we are obligated to do something about it. So I don't think it changes the, the purpose of the 1619 Project because I've always said, uh, I pitched this project to force a reckoning with what our country was founded upon and how slavery is a foundational American institution. But that reckoning um, also meant we have to reckon with what do we owe uh, to the people who had to go through this. Um, it sounds like you did think it through though. <laughs> I guess I just ask as a, as a journalist, right, that we do think about the role that journalism plays and how it needs to change. And, and I, I was wondering how much that factored into your thinking about it, about putting out this sort of policy um, prescription. Yes, I mean, we thought through every single thing <laughs> that is in that project um, obsessively for lots of reasons, understanding how important this project was, understanding what it would mean to publish something like this project in the New York Times, and understanding the type of scrutiny and criticism that you would get to make these arguments in the paper of record in mm -hmm. something that means, you know, speaks to power in that way. So there was nothing in this project that wasn't carefully considered and intentional and certainly to end the book, making the case for reparations um, in the way that I did. I speak to kind of every objection I've ever heard about reparations and I meet that with data and facts. And that is, all of that was intentional, but also you know, again, this is why I, I love the study of history. The idea that American journalism is this objective uh, field, this view from nowhere, is actually fairly recent. The New York Times was founded as a Republican paper, and most journalism um, for the vast history of this country had a point of view. They were making arguments from a point of view and certainly the black press, which had to be founded in a country that 
were first we were enslaved and then we didn't have our citizenship rights recognized by our own governments. You couldn't pretend to neutrality in your journalism. So I've never bought into this idea of neutrality and I certainly have never bought into the idea that journalism is a neutral profession. I think we've been forced um, to try to pretend that we are, but you know this as a journalist, we all have points of view on the world we inhabit, on the things that we cover. Um, what we must do is try to ensure that we are being accurate and that we're being fair to the things and the people that we're covering. But I've never uh, believed in this idea that, that we are objective, and certainly I'm not. Well, let me go to caller Ralph in Berkeley. Hi, Ralph. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want to extend a tremendous gratitude to Professor Hannah Jones. Um, reading the 1619 report in the New York Times basically changed my life. Um, mm -hmm. There are so many things that were mind-blowing in that report, but the most important in terms of my own personal journey was the uh, awareness that so much wealth in this country started um, from the exploitation of enslaved people and then was passed down through generations. And so it didn't take too much looking back into my history to discover the connection in my past to wealth that I own that I don't need. And so I've made the choice to donate a significant portion of that to organizations that are serving black people and people of color as an act of personal reparations. And I invite other white folks who I learned also from the report have, you know, on average, something like eight or 16 times more wealth than black people. If we all chose to give that portion that we don't even need back, reparations actually wouldn't need to be um, dealt with that much at the governmental level. We could all personally make reparations by just giving back. What was stolen is what we teach our children. If my son comes home with something that I know is stolen, what I teach him is to give it back and apologize. Wow. Ralph, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, your reaction to what Ralph is saying, and, and curious if you have heard others tell you, I imagine you, you must have, about how the 1619 Project has, has changed their lives. Yes. Um, thank you so much for calling in, Ralph, and for sharing that. Um, it's been a tough two and a half years since this project came out, and every time I hear uh, a fellow American who has made that type of connection and who has gotten that type of perspective from reading the project, it just really affirms why I, I sought to do this work. I really do believe most Americans um, are open to this. They just haven't learned it. And their understanding of America has been fundamentally shaped on a mythology. And I do believe, I mean, that gets back to why I made the case for reparations at the end of the book. I do believe that if we had a better understanding of what this country was built upon and really the unearned suffering of 40 million of our fellow Americans, that we would implement different policies, that we would act differently. Um, so 
I'm not advocating personal reparations. I, I do think that white Americans um, have to decide on their own what they're willing to take on and that it is our government that owes. But I do appreciate this honest grappling with that unearned advantage, which is not to say no white people have suffered or struggled or have had a hard time or that white Americans haven't worked hard for the things that they have. Um, but we do have to acknowledge that they have worked hard for the things that they have in a country built for their success. And black people have had the opposite experience. Do you also hear concerns like Sam who writes, yes, America was founded on slavery and racism and it grew and thrived for some on the same principles. What happens if the nation can't survive more equality? What happens if the whole system collapses if power is more evenly distributed? Because as you know, those in power would sooner burn down the house than share it with others. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, I would argue that we're... Mm -hmm witnessing that right now right it's a big and question. yes clearly the moment that we're in where you have dozens of scholars of democracies uh, across the world who are saying that american democracy is in trouble that uh we are at the brink of not having democracy anymore speaks exactly to that uh the fact is uh we've only had a semblance of democracy since 1965. And prior to 1965, the ideal of democracy was democracy for white Americans. And since we've now had to share democracy and who gets to exercise the levers of power in the democracy, you have one political party that doesn't seem that interested in democracy anymore. So I agree that it is a scary thought um, because our country was not designed to be a multiracial democracy. But then the question, must be asked, um, what is the alternative then? That Black Americans and other marginalized Americans just bow out, uh, that we don't try to exercise the rights that we should have always had because there's a segment of white Americans who can't handle the idea of sharing power. That's not the majority. I mean, what the Republicans, and, and I say this not as a partisan, I say this is just facts, um, what the Republicans are trying to do around voting and uh, electoral subversion is about ensuring minority rule, because the majority of voters, which is a plurality of white Americans, and then the majority of uh, voters of color um, are actually the majority of voters in this country. And they do want a multiracial democracy. So what happens is largely dependent upon what we do in this moment. And we do have power to make this country the country of our highest ideals. But too many of us are ceding that power right now. And in this moment, I mean, today, U.S. senators are taking up the pair of bills on voting rights. Um, and yes, there is so much happening right now that leaves a lot of people asking the question of where our democracy is headed. And it is interesting to hear you talking about what is the alternative. Let me read just a couple of more comments that are coming in from our listeners. Michael writes on Facebook, to accurately teach our history, we as a society need to reckon with the past, both good and bad. Acknowledge it. We need to always aspire to be our best selves. We are so much stronger when we are united that while we're imperfect, we aspire to a more just society. Trying to whitewash the past locks us into continued divisions and injustices. And Ron tweets, I never understood the American Revolution until I read the first chapter of 1619. Taxation never seemed to be reason enough to take up arms against your own countrymen. Thank you for explaining the origin story of America. 
Of course, that gets to a much bigger conversation, but that's been dealt with quite a bit um, in previous interviews. So I can leave that there for right now. But Noah tweets, how can we get the 1619 Project into school textbooks? And it is such an interesting question because actually um, all over the country, there are bans on 1619 in any school curriculum whatsoever. We're about to get into a break, but I am curious about your reaction to that and how you feel like that that feeds into these broader concerns about democracy and history and national narratives? Well, just to be clear, uh, it was never our intent that the 1619 Project would replace the pretty poor history curriculum that we already get in most of our schools. And I, and I wouldn't want it to, because the 1619 Project is uh, the story of America told through the lens of slavery. And that is not the whole story of America either. The 1619 Project was always uh, intended to supplement our understanding to really widen that lens. Um, you could have a similar project around indigenous people. You could have a similar project around Latinos. Um, so I would love to see, of course, the project expanded into schools, but not to replace history, but to add. We're talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, and we're asking you, our listeners, to also think about what our nation needs in order to accurately teach its history. Nicole Hannah-Jones is an investigative reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine, also creator of the 1619 Project. You can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project, for which you won the Pulitzer Prize. The project is now a book titled The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions for Nicole Hannah-Jones, telling us the effect the project has had on you and what your thoughts are about our nation moving forward and grappling with its history. 866-733-6786, the number, email address, forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Todd in Oakland. Hi, Todd. Thanks for waiting. Hi, thank you. Uh, first of all, I can say uh, to uh, Professor Jones, uh, thank you for your magnificent work and your sacrifice to do this work. I understand there has to be a lot of pressure with this. Hmm. Um, the question that I have is, um, in regards to critical race theory and the 1619 Project, and, and that is, um, the framing seems to be that it's something that will cause white children to feel guilty with this information being taught. And uh, my question is, what do you feel about, instead of them feeling guilty, that they should be, uh, that they are actually uh, harming the kids in, in terms of not allowing them to develop the natural human compassion by receiving this information. And, and why should, should do you, how do you feel about that being the framing rather than the guilt concept? Because I think that, you know, we all know the children come into the world clear, perfect, and beautiful, and then they're altered as they receive information. And I think that, you know, compassion is a natural human uh, quality, and I think that it's being altered, if not murdered, by this belief that they can't accept this information or learn this information. 
Todd, thanks. Nicole Hannah-Jones? Yes, thank you for that question. And I, I always have to answer these critical race theory questions by beginning with the fact that this uh, anti-critical race theory uh, political campaign was a propaganda effort. And we just have to call it what it is. Um, we've heard very, very little about critical race theory since the, uh, the midterm election. And there's a reason for that. Um, I have not seen any evidence that uh, teachers of whom 80% of them are white are teaching white children that they are oppressors or that they should feel guilty about this past. And I have met countless children and parents who have introduced their children to the 1619 Project or to uh, the children's book that is a companion to the 1619 Project called Born on the Water. And none of them have said that their children have felt guilty. They have felt pain. Uh, they have felt empathy. Certainly, it has been a time to reflect on this country and what does race mean and how is race function in this country. But I don't know anyone who's telling a child that he or she should feel guilty because of something that people a long time ago did. The people who say that know that that's not what is being taught. And our children are capable of having highly complex, nuanced conversations about this history's past. And if we want our children to do better, to make different choices, to try to address the inequality that they see, then we have to teach them the truth about uh, how these things were created. Our children are not that fragile. And frankly, if you know, you, you can't argue that there's never been a teacher who hasn't taught these things well. I mean, certainly we've seen teachers who've held mock slave auctions. Uh, I think teachers struggle to teach about the history of racism in this country and the history of slavery. But as a parent, that gives me an opportunity to have a conversation with my child to say, well, why are you feeling guilt? What, what about learning these lessons would make you feel guilt and to have a conversation about compassion and empathy and the hurtful things about our past? So I agree with you, but we also have to stop letting bad faith actors set the, uh, the parameters of the conversation. We know critical race theory is the wrong terminology. We know that this was a creative campaign. Certainly the efforts against the 1619 Project are completely politicized and not about how children have actually experienced the project. You know, uh, forum producer Ariana Prales, she flagged a couple of tweets of yours back in November that I was really taken with as well because they remind me of conversations that I've had with friends about the power of of shame or actually rather the power of needing to avoid shame um, or a sense of discomfort. And you had tweeted along the lines that um, shame is is not a bad thing. Feeling ashamed or shameful is not bad. You, you write, it's called being an empath empathetic and moral human being. Shame helps us to do better. When I visit when I visited the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum about the impact of the U.S.'s atomic bomb as an American, I felt shame. And then you went on to tweet, it's actually simple. If you can feel pride in things you didn't take, didn't personally take part in, then you can feel shame in things you didn't personally take part in. Some of you are motivated to make this hard, but it's only hard because you want the glory of our history, but not the burden. What connection do you see? Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, between avoiding 
shame and our inability to face our history of slavery or to give repair? Yes, I mean, this is, this is why we as a country are struggling so much right now. This is why we as a country are so divided. Um, I find shame to be a useful emotion. When people do terrible things in our name, we should feel ashamed of that. And then we should uh, use that shame uh, to push for things to be better, to do things differently. Um, I find very interesting, and, and, and let me say I realize how um, difficult and how kind of um, shocking and disconcerting it has to be to have grown up and lived your entire life with this narrative of American exceptionalism that no nation in the history of the world has ever been greater and freer and then have to be confronted with all of the many ways that this country was cruel and uh, operated antithetical to its own highest ideals, the brutal suppression of democracy and rights in a country that we believe was founded on um, these exceptional ideas of, of God-given rights for all human beings. That can be a very hard uh, truth to grapple with. And you can have two responses to that. One response can be to say, wow, I didn't know. And that explains a lot about the world that I live in and why America operates like it operates. Or you can say, that's all made up. It's not true. And I don't want to hear about it. In fact, I want to ban uh, children and others from learning about it. But one thing that I get all the time uh, for people who don't want to grapple with the truth of our country. And, and I say this in the, the final chapter of the 1619 book, that if we actually believe in American greatness, then we can handle and withstand the truth. And we show our greatness by grappling honestly with it and then using our collective power to make amends for what was done. Um, but I hear from people all the time, well, my, my ancestors didn't own slaves. My ancestors never did any of this but your ancestors didn't sign the Declaration of Independence either. Your ancestors didn't write the constitution. And yet, uh, whether you came, your family came here on the Mayflower or your family came here in 1975, you want to claim that glory. That is part of your collective identity as an American. And what I'm arguing is we have to own it all. That if we are Americans, then we have to collectively own the good parts of our country and the bad. And that is what makes a country great. This, this denial, this need to tell Black people to be quiet about our part of the history, to separate those histories. Um, you know, the, the Washington Post just had this, published this amazing investigation last week about how many people who served in Congress, and they were all men except one, owned human beings engaged in slavery. It was some 1,700. Um, and we've been taught to think that that somehow did not shape our country and its politics and its laws uh, and its policies and its wealth. But that's just denialism. And uh, to me, a great country doesn't have to deny the truth about who it is. Um, and, I, and I think too many Americans don't want to feel any sense of obligation uh, for the wrongs of this country. And they only want uh, to 
to glory, to take glory uh, in the good things that this country has done. But you can't do one without the other. You talked about how um, we, the sense of shame can can move us into two different directions and how that relates to your project. And I think from our listeners, you're hearing One Direction, which is very much an appreciation and wanting to learn and understand more. For example, Sharon writes, I'm indebted to you for leading the fight for U.S. schools to teach the truth about our history. I had to unteach a lot of baloney consumed while growing up in public school and training for my career teaching English as a second language to young adults. I realized Mm. that the system was asking me to impart the racist myths that native speakers are brought up onto my new immigrant students that are brought up on to my new immigrant students. But some of my colleagues and I chose to teach the truth by using sources such as the 1619 Project. What, and I guess this gets at a little bit of the earlier conversation too, this moving in two different directions. There is definitely a reaction to seek out the comfortable places that will give our shame avoidance refuge, that will rationalize wrongs, that will legitimize uh, the way we are feeling. Do you feel like you based on the response that you've gotten from this, which I'm sure has been such a combination of appreciation and vitriol, right? Do you f- feel a sense of where we're headed at this point? Um, I, well, let me say as a, as a nation, uh, politically, I'm very afraid, not because I think most Americans um, are content with the direction that our country is going. Not because I think most Americans um, want to see the dismantling of our democracy, but I do think a minority of Americans, uh, as they always have in this country, have an outsized power. With that said, you would not see the efforts to suppress the teaching of the 1619 Project, to discredit the 1619 Project. I mean all across the country in these states that are uh, passing these anti-critical race theory laws, almost exclusively the only single text that is named by name is the 1619 Project. There's a bill uh, still in the Senate, uh, the Saving American History Act that specifically targets the 1619 Project. And it was created by one of the most powerful senators in the country. You wouldn't see those types of efforts. If there wasn't a fear that millions of Americans were embracing this understanding of history, were wanting to grapple with the truth of, of who we are as a country. You don't bring all the, you know, this much power, some of the most powerful people in this country against a project that is not having an impact on regular Americans who didn't already know this history. And that is what gives me um, I don't want to say hope because I'm not a hopeful person and I'm <laughs> and I actually am quite frightened about who's going to ultimately win Mm -hmm. uh, right now and whether democracy, uh, I think we have a a false sense of how strong our democracy is that is not borne out from from studying history. But I know that it speaks to the openness of so many Americans who have, you know, the 1619 Project and other works that uh, have undergirded the project is giving them that same sense that I had as a 16-year-old. Like, wow, what, what else haven't I been taught? What, you know, I often say that the 1619 Project is like taking the red pill in the matrix, that you lived in this world where you see things and you just take for granted that this is just the natural 
way that our country operates. And then suddenly you can see all of the architecture that has built this. And when I've had conversations, particularly with high school students who have engaged this project, they tell me all the time, like the world didn't make sense. The things I was seeing didn't make sense. The, the, the reason our cities are so segregated or our schools are so segregated or why do I always know when I'm arriving to a black neighborhood because all of a sudden the housing starts looking shabbier and the streets aren't uh, repaired. And now it makes sense to them and the world they inhabit makes sense to them. And that is empowering. And um, I think people who want to maintain the status quo clearly don't want us to be empowered um, because we do have the ability in this country to shape the country that we want. And um, I think there are millions of Americans who would do better if they knew better. We're talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Almost right on point, listener Mike writes, when I was in fifth grade, my white teacher read Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. He didn't provide a preview nor commentary along the way. He just read it. It had an impact on me and raised my awareness about the different world people of color live in. I hope teachers everywhere remain free to provide facts and information to kids. They can handle the truth. Thank you for this project. This is the best American work and most essential. It's what makes us great. Quote, the truth. <laughs> you, have a lot of, <laughs> you have a lot of fans. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. One thing that I do want to ask you is if you would just leave us by talking about your dad, um, the story about your father and the chapter on democracy and the way that you felt about your dad flying the flag, I think is almost another piece of this, another part of this conversation that we have about grappling and feeling that really centers your experience and the experiences of people of color. Can you, can you describe um, what he did and the effect that that had on you and how you understand now, what you understand patriotism to be? Sure. So I, I open um, my opening essay in the book, which is called Democracy, talking about my father, who was born in apartheid Mississippi. He was born on a cotton plantation that had once been a um, forced slave labor camp. Um, and he was born in a shack, a sharecropping shack, because Black people could not give birth in the hospital in Greenwood, Mississippi. And he um, joined the military at 17 um, for reasons that many low-income kids joined the military, but also uh, for reasons that leads Black Americans to be the people who serve their country at the highest rates, which is hoping that serving your country would uh, finally give you the legitimacy of citizenship in your country. Uh, so I, I talk about how my dad always flew this American flag in our front yard. And, and I didn't know any other black families in my neighborhood who flew a flag on the front of their home. And I was really embarrassed by that flag. I didn't understand why a black man who had uh, never been treated fairly in this country um, could kind of outwardly show that patriotism. And, and in some ways, the 1619 Project is taking us on an American journey, but it's also uh, my own journey to understand my father and his patriotism. And, and, and I think this kind of universally conflict, conflict that Black Americans have, which is how can you be patriotic in a country where the only reason you're here is because of slavery and that for the first 350 years, you didn't even have rights to citizenship. Um, and I... I end kind of with the understanding of, of my dad saying, no one is going to take the legacy 
of the country that we built from us and tell us that we can't feel pride in a country that would not exist as it does without us. And not just because of our brute labor, but because of our intellect, because of our cultural contributions, and most importantly, because we are the ones who fought for an expanded democracy for all Americans. If we could understand that about America, we would be uh, a greater country. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Nicole Hannah-Jones, investigative reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine, creator of the 1619 Project, for which she won the Pulitzer. The project is now a book titled The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. My thanks to Ariana Prell for producing today's segment, to our listeners for sharing their thoughts and their questions. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.